30 Minutes with VT's Dr. Kevin Barrett, right here, right now, on VT Radio. Let's go. With host Johnny Punish. We're back on VT Radio with the most fantastic Dr. Kevin Barrett, all the way from Saida, Morocco. Are you in Saida, Kevin, right now? I sure am, Johnny. I, I, I just got back, actually, from Ushta. Ah, okay. So I understand you were at a, a Sufi conference. Is that right? Can you explain it to our readers? What's that about? Yeah. Um, there's this big Sufi group in Morocco called the Bouchi Shia Sufi Order. Now, these Sufi orders are sort of mystical brotherhoods. Sufism is often defined as Morocco, or, uh, Islamic mysticism. And so what that means is it's those Muslims who are trying to get an actual taste of nearness to God. Uh, to have, you know, the, the hippies used to like Sufism because it's all about, you know, changing your state of consciousness, expanding your state of consciousness, reaching a state of consciousness that's closer to God or the angelic realm. And they do this through meditation. And that kind of meditation involves breath control with chanting. And we typically chant Quranic uh, segments and, and things like that. So anyway, there was a big academic conference about that here at the Buchi Shia Zawiya, which is up in Madar, which is close here to Saidia. It's the first conference I've actually been, first academic conference I've been to in, I don't know, 25, 20, 25 years. And, you know, I, I also it was weird because all the conferences I go to usually are 9-11 truth conspiracy conferences where I'm, I'm a speaker. So here I got to be a lurker at an academic Sufi conference. It was kind of fun. <laughs> so you're, you're almost a spectator in the crowd or what? Yeah, I was just another face in the crowd. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's so close to your house. That's one of the advantages of being in Morocco. Now you're so close to uh, the, you know, the the people there, uh, Islamic culture and traditions. So you can explain it to our viewers and readers around the world uh, what it's really like, as opposed to uh, you know people talking about it on mainstream American news that don't know much about it. You know what I mean? So I, I, I really appreciate that. Yeah, well, thanks. Yeah, it's, it, it is great. You know, like I, on this hour-long taxi ride we did today uh, into Ujda, the first taxi driver he was playing Quran on the car stereo. And it was really a beautiful recitation and very relaxing. It was really a good thing to listen to while you drive across this beautiful mountainous coastal Mediterranean landscape. Now, speaking of a beautiful mountain uh, area, uh, in Morocco, you just had an earthquake there about three weeks ago, right? Yeah, yeah, we did. Yeah, it was a month ago. It was over in western Morocco, uh, 800 kilometers from where we are. So we didn't feel it, but some of my in-laws in western Morocco did feel it, and they felt it enough that they and their neighbors went out and spent the rest of the night in the street. Uh, But it really, it really hammered uh, Marrakesh and the uh, area sort of south of Marrakesh. And so the update from Morocco is good. I mean, Morocco as a country is, is, is bouncing back on this, or what? Yeah, yeah, that area is recovering. They've they've already, you know, they've long since finished kind of the search and rescue, and they're in the rebuilding phase now. Gotcha. So that's good news. Okay, let's get to foreign policy. Uh, I noticed on VT Foreign Policy, you published uh, a, an article uh, yesterday uh, about conspiracy theory. Can you go ahead and explain that article because I think it's really intense and it's not quite clear to me exactly what you're talking about. One conspiracy. One conspiracy theory of them all. Explain that, please. Well, yeah, that was my snarky headline. One conspiracy theory to rule them all. 
And of course, yeah. that's a, a reference to the Lord of the Rings, right? The one ring to rule them all. And it's, I'm joking around with that just because, uh, you know, I'm playing around with the notion of conspiracy theories in a way that is kind of obviously subverting the official discourse about conspiracy theories, which is that they're, they're very bad, they're very dangerous, you know, they're always anti-Semitic, and that's terrible, and we should be very, very afraid of them. Uh, you know, like Cass Sunstein, Obama's information czar, said, someday we may have to outlaw conspiracy theories. But in the min- meantime, the government should just infiltrate the conspiracy groups in order to, quote-unquote, disable the purveyors of conspiracy theories through cognitive infiltration. And I think that means maybe, I don't know, flat earth or something, you know, sneak into the 9-11 truth group and try to spread the flat earth conspiracy theory. Anyway, in my article, I was, you know, playing around with this because like, why should, you know, why should we be so afraid uh, of everything? The mainstream media wants us to be afraid of everything. And then there are some people in the alternative media community who also are, you know, selling a lot of what some people call fear porn. And I think the whole purpose of confronting this stuff is getting past the state of fear. And, and one of the ways of getting past the state of fear is to get past the state of being afraid of what other people think of you. And so if you're a 9-11 truther and a JFK truther and, you know, a conspiracy theorist and you, and you're totally shameless about it uh, and you just don't care what people think of you, you know, you've kind of transcended that fear programming that they're trying to instill in you. So I, I play around with that kind of stuff in that article but then the one conspiracy theory that I'm referring to in this title is you know, bringing together a whole bunch of these uh, themes that we covered in our 30 news stories on False Flag Weekly News, stuff that happened this week. And so what happened this week that we're pulling together? Uh, well, uh, there's that big story about RFK Jr. not believing the official version of 9-11. So 9-11 truth is one of them. And then, of course, these Kennedy assassinations naturally comes next. Uh, with, you know, with RFK Jr. there. And uh, then there's uh, the Ukraine war, of course, the, the, those stories, and about what's really going on and where that's going. And then finally, there are a bunch of these culture wars type stories about basically, you know, the kind of extreme craziness of the exaggerated LGBTQ XYZ movement, and especially the, you know, foisting uh, sex changes on children and things like that, all of this stuff. That, so, so what I did was I pulled all of that together into sort of one big overarching conspiracy theory that I don't even really necessarily believe in, but I'm sort of entertaining it just to see what it, you know, where it's going. And that theory is, uh, and this is the anti-Semitic one, and I referenced it because, okay, I have radio guests and friends who think that the real reason that the neoconservatives, that it, which are, they're, of course, radical Jewish Zionists, uh, are the ones who orchestrated this war in Ukraine, uh, is because these people think that the, that the neocons want to kill off the Slavs, the Christian Slavs in both Russia and Ukraine, who are the ancient, you know, tribal enemies of the Jews. I mean, they're the worst persecutors of the Jews ever. You know, they did the pogroms and so on. So this is revenge. This is like Jewish revenge against the Goy Christians in Ukraine and Russia, the Slavs. And according to this conspiracy theory, uh, the neocons are trying to kill off as many Slavs in that part of the world as possible so they can resettle that area, which is their real homeland. You know, Palestine was never the, you know, homeland of the European Jews. 
the, you know, Khazaria was. Khazaria is in what's now Ukraine. So that's the conspiracy theory. And so what, how does that relate to all this other stuff? Well, of course, we all, we all know the same neocon Zionists did 9-11. It's very likely that the precursors of those kinds of neocon Zionists killed President Kennedy in order to make sure that Israel got the nuclear bomb, which President John F. Kennedy was trying to stop. And all of this sexual degeneracy, what does it really amount to? What it really amounts to is uh, an attempt to separate sexuality from reproduction and break down traditional reproductive family structures. Now, who, why do you do that? Well, if you were a tribal group that was trying to outcompete another tribal group, you would try to spread this kind of sexual degeneracy uh, among your enemies so they wouldn't reproduce very much so that you would inherit the earth. And so this conspiracy theory that Jews are going to resettle Khazaria, which I always said sounded ridiculous to me, where are they all going to come from? They can't even find enough Jews to go to Israel. Uh, they have to import fake <laughs> Jews, kidding, two, right? Million, right, two million fake Jews from Russia. So, so I, I, I used to laugh at that conspiracy theory. Really smart people seem to believe it, right? Uh, you know, challenger uh, whistleblower Richard Cook was the first guy who told to me. Lots of other smart people. Helen Bynisky was just saying it on my show last week, and I always say, "Yes, yeah, said ah, it, it doesn't make sense." But now, of course, the, I, I just referenced this. There's a new article on population up at the UNS Review that mentions that global population is going to rebound. It's not going to keep going down. You know, uh, we're we're getting lower and lower. Uh, reproductive rates, right? Number of children per woman has gone way, way down. It's below replacement in most of the world, and a lot of the world anyway. But that won't continue because what happens is there are you know, different types of people in the world. The type of people who decide not to have children are basically weeding themselves out of the gene pool garden. And the people who, who are continuing to have big families even when they have access to birth control and when they're surrounded by media telling them that homosexuality is good and you know, everything except being a, a patriarchal white male having a lot of kids is good, you know, make it really easy to do all kinds of sexuality outside of reproduction, right? But there's still some people who somehow keep managing to have lots and lots and lots of kids. So those people are in here, they and their children and their children's children will inherit the world. The children of people who have big families now are much more likely they themselves to have big families for both genetic and cultural reasons. So within a few generations, all of the secular people of today will be gone. They're all of the genes of the secular people today will be just gone, kaput. There might be a tiny little bit left floating around somewhere. And the whole world will be the descendants of people like the Amish who are having lots of kids. And here's where the conspiracy theory comes in. The uh, super religious Orthodox Jews who are having lots of kids and who've already totally taken over Israel. They used to be a tiny minority in Israel. They're now the majority of the population. So th this process of a certain groups reproducing like mad, while everybody else basically sterilizes themselves and removes themselves from the gene pool, that's, that's a hugely important process that's going to construct the world of the future. And so my conspiracy theory was maybe there will be enough Jews to settle Hazari because you know, right now there's <laughs> <Okay>. like <laughs> like 50, 15 or 20 million in the world. But the way the Orthodox Jews are uh, are having kids, it, they're going to be like tens of millions, maybe up into the three digit, you know, hundreds of millions before too long, uh, plenty to fill Hazari. So that's my crazy conspiracy theory. So you think maybe 100 years? 
I don't know. <laughs> but, but the thing about this theory, though, is it ties right in with, you know, as I say in the article, I, I know that there is a Jewish plot to take over the world. It's no secret. It's called eschatology, right? Christianity, Islam, and Judaism all have eschatologies. And the Jewish one is okay. that the, Jew, the Jewish Messiah is going to be a military conqueror who subjugates all of the non-Jews to the Jews, conquers the non-Jews, subjugates them, enslaves them or whatever, and the Jews rule the world. That is the that's Jewish eschatology. I mean, so, uh, and a lot of these Orthodox religious Jews actually believe this. And then in my article, I, I wonder, well, how about these atheist neocons? Could they actually be consciously pursuing all of these policies, right? Wiping out global, you know, Islamic movement and, and lowering Muslim population with 9-11 and the war on Islam, uh, uh, going after the West and, and you know, knocking down the birth rate of, of these Western countries and stuff. And, and so who's still breeding? It's actually these, <laughs> these uh, uh, super religious Orthodox Jews, especially in Israel, but to some extent in New Jersey. <laughs> and so, you know, their, their, uh, their eschatology is we're going to inherit the world. And, you know, you could all, you have this, this conspiracy theory would say, you know, maybe that's what they're consciously trying to do. So, okay. So the question I have for you is conspiracy theory. How do you deal with when someone presents to you an idea or a theory or a concern? How does a professor analyze that and say, okay, this is a conspiracy theory and I'm going to leave it there. Or there's some truth in here based on this evidence. And then how do you, how do you go through that process? You personally help our readers and listeners understand what a professor does to do that. Well, I, I don't think there's really any difference between, you know, trying to find the truth about let's say 9/11 or the JFK assassination, trying to find you know, for, trying to find the truth about you know what's going on uh, in Pakistan right now with the overthrow of Imran Khan, or trying to find the truth about some aspect of the history of the Cold War, World War II, or back further in history is all the same process. And so, if something's labeled a conspiracy theory, that really shouldn't have very much effect on your process of analyzing it. Uh, I think though that the one thing you have to be aware of is that when you know things that are called conspiracy theories are subject areas that you're really not supposed to investigate honestly, uh, especially if it might lead towards you know uncomfortable conclusions that are going to mess with your career if you try to publicize them. So I think your that's- life? Maybe even your life, yeah, in some right. cases, uh, rare cases, I think. Uh, so I, it, I, I think what I would like to see more academic people do is try to be aware of their own responses to the career implications of what they do and then consciously try to remove the impediments to seeking truth that come from being subliminally often uh, aware that what you study, how you study it, you know, and, and what you have to say about it can have an impact on your career and the way your colleagues see you. And I, I think that once you think that way, you know, rather than like what most people do, I think is uh, they follow that, you know, Mark Twain dictum, or I think it is Twain that said that it's hard to make a man understand something if his salary depends on not understanding it. And, ah. and, and so there's a, it's, it, there's an unconscious block to 
um, going places with research that you start to sense are not going to be good for your career, that are going to bring down problems for you with your colleagues, your reputation, and so on. And what I would like to see is for people to fully become conscious of it, try to become conscious of that, and then recognize that your mission is to search for truth, especially about the most important things. Because, you know, truth by itself is actually not that important because there are a lot of truths that are trivial. So along with searching for truth in general, we need to be evaluating what are the most important areas where we can try to find the most important truths. And if we do that, honestly, we quickly often tend to run into these areas where there's some really huge, important truth that's been pushed off and swept under the rug for political reasons or what have you. And that's where you start thinking, hmm, you know, if I go after this truth, you know, I, I could just, I know that it's going to make my life harder. My career is going to be, and I, I'd like people to think through all of this ahead of time and then have that commitment to pursuing that important truth anyway, regardless of the consequences to one's career and reputation. And if you're not willing to do that, I don't think you should even be in the academy. I don't think anybody should ever be paid to be a teacher above maybe the third or fourth grade level who doesn't go through that process and swear, uh, absolutely commit themselves, maybe formally take take a blood oath or what, not blood, but whatever they swear on. <laughs> a holy book, sort of really, yeah, holy book is better than blood. Uh, but whatever kind of oath they swear, you should, you should have to swear an oath to do that, to pursue the truth, most important truths, especially those that are the hardest ones in terms of career and reputation. And if you're not willing to do that, go, you know, go, go do something useful like like pump gas. I mean, they still have people pumping gas here in Morocco, and it's kind of nice. And, and you know, the people teaching university who aren't willing to go all the way seeking truth, they'd be better off pumping gas. Right. Uh, unlike, let's say, mainstream media talking heads who get paid millions of dollars to say whatever their corporate uh, structure says to say, right? I mean, that's completely different, right? Well, yes and no. I mean, that's they're not. That's not how journalism should work either, right? Journalism but should that's be how like it works, though. That's the, exactly, exactly. How it works. but but yeah. you know, really, you should. It, it should be the same way. I mean, we we should be so outraged by these journalists whose first concern isn't digging out the hardest truth and offending the most powerful people by exposing the very hardest, most unpopular truth. Any journalists who aren't like that, and of course, they're almost all not like that. They should be run out of the profession. They have no business being journalists. Again, they should be pumping gas. They should be sweeping up the streets, doing something useful rather than poisoning the world with their crappy propaganda. Right. No kidding, right? Uh, okay, I want to segue into something else because we talked about this earlier about conspiracy theories and this and that. You know, the United States Congress right now is fighting with each other. Uh, they just went through a thing they were going to shut down the government. They made a deal. Kevin McCarthy's doing this. Matt Gates is doing that. They're not sure if they're going to fund Ukraine for $10 billion or $300 million or zero. The extreme right wants no funding as far as I'm, I, I'm aware of. And McCarthy seems to be middling it with the Democrats. Uh, this is going to affect the Ukraine war uh, and the, the position of the United States government. Where do you see this going? What's happening right now on the ground uh, in Ukraine and what's happening in the U.S. Congress that you see? Well, uh, I think the Ukraine war currently is it's become a war of attrition. And in the long run, that favors Russia because Russia has managed to build up a formidable 
military industrial production capacity. There was just a recent New York Times article about this that, oh, no, Russia isn't running out of missiles. <laughs> and they're not running out of artillery. They're not running out of anything. They're out producing us. And, of course, the New York Times says, well, that's partly because they're willing to cut corners in terms of safety and things like that. But for whatever reason... Okay, sounds uh, good. What is that supposed to mean? Yeah, what, right. I mean, it's a war. It, who cares? Yeah, hundreds of thousands of people are dying. And so, you know, your process of making your artillery in the factory, if you cut a couple of corners and, and somebody gets hurt, that would be very sad. But, in a, you know, when you're fighting to, you know, doing the existential war to try and save your country, you're probably mostly concerned about producing enough ammunition to do it. Anyway, so it's a war of attrition that favors Russia in the long term. And the best the neocons can hope for is that, well, we, you know, we, we screwed over the Europeans, you know, we kept them from hooking up to Russian energy, uh, we blew up their Nord Stream pipeline, forced them to buy from America, you know, we propped up the dollar for a while by, you know, forcing a lot of European industry to come to the United States, uh, you know, we crippled the industrial production of Germany, so we basically subjugated Europe, so Europe is even more of a vassal to the United States, it's, it's less likely to escape from the clutches of the American empire anytime soon, so we accomplished that. And so what else did we accomplish? Well, we've got Russia kind of bogged down. I mean, Russia is, you know, they, they've lost a lot of people. They, uh, they've had to turn, you know, to the east and so on. Uh, and, and this is where the, the neocons who, what they think they're doing is crippling Russia on the way to just destroying China. But they may have shot themselves in the foot because they forced Russia to turn to China and get closer to China. And together, Russia and China are quite formidable. Uh, so where is it all going? You know, I think this war of attrition favoring Russia is because the Americans led by the neocons can't admit that they were wrong, can't face their mistake, that it's likely that it's going to drag on, drag on, drag on. And finally, in the end, Russia ends up taking, you know, the whole black sea coast and then calling it a day. When you say making a mistake, but, but aren't the profiteers, the military industrial complex profiteers making a ton of money off this Ukraine war from the American standpoint, but the defense contractors sending this, sending that, selling this, selling that, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Those people must be making some serious bank. Am I wrong Absolutely. about that? Oh yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, no matter how stupid the war you're fighting, no matter how badly you lose, no matter how embarrassing your defeat is, um, there are, if there are people on your side who are raking in vast piles of money, those individuals, those corrupt uh, criminals, uh, had a good war. You know, like in Vietnam, the, the guys who smuggled heroin out of Vietnam, the CIA heroin smugglers, who sometimes sewed up bags of heroin in the bodies of dead American servicemen and flew them back and then loaded the heroin. Uh, you know, those guys had a good war. They made huge piles of money, and then they moved their operation to Afghanistan, did the same thing in Afghanistan, made huge piles of money. Now, we, we have these indelible images of the Americans being evacuated in panic from the rooftop of the embassy in Saigon, then exactly the same thing in Kabul, right? So these wars yeah. were just catastrophic for the United States, but somebody made a lot of money off the heroin and somebody made a lot of money off the weapons. So yeah, those people are probably perfectly happy. Another question for you about the United States. Uh, U.S. has the largest uh, gross domestic product in the world. They're the number one economy still in the world, um, you know, I guess China's number two, or India, I think, is number two. I'm not sure. But um, they're both up there. Uh, why should we expect the United States to capitulate on anything? I mean, these guys are going to go all the way, aren't they? I mean, these guys are not going to just let it go because they're frustrated. Um, I mean, whether we agree with it or not, um, their power is there. They do have the power of the United States behind them. 
why should we expect them to capitulate on anything? This might go long and long and long and long, and God knows it could be another 10 years before we get through this. What's, what say you about that? Yeah, it's it, we don't really know how the uh, American neocon side, which is mainly responsible for the war and for keeping the war going, how they're going to ever get out of it, given the fact that, as I said, it's a war of attrition that Russia wins slowly. So, you know, there are some, all kinds of possibilities. Maybe the, the most disturbing possibility is that this could all end up being an excuse for an American attempt to do a disabling first nuclear strike on Russia. And that's, you know, people like Philip Kraske have written about that possibility. Uh, and he makes a pretty good case that that's, it's, it's sort of on the table. I mean, the U.S. has always had a first strike nuclear doctrine that, you know, we're not going to be the second to shoot. We're always going to be the first. And the U.S. nuclear arsenal is constructed to uh, be able to threaten and, you know, theoretically actually uh, carry out a new, disabling nuclear first strike. And these weapons have gotten faster and faster, more and more accurate, better and better at being able to surprise the other side and take out the vast majority of their weapons. Uh, and then the thinking is that there's enough sort of anti-missile technology to protect uh, the U.S. against whatever little bit would be left. So that's that's the official American doctrine is the first strike. Whether they would actually do that, uh, I, don't, I don't know if they're that crazy because Russia saw this coming and has countered it. And of course, you know, how effective all of this is, is all, it's all, you know, way above my pay grade or security clearance level in uh, both the U.S. And, and Russia. But the Russians purportedly have some really nasty, unstoppable stuff. So I kind of think that the neocons are checkmated there, most likely. Uh, well, and- what, what's the closest nuclear bomb to Russia that the United States has? Where would that be located? Do you know? That's Any a idea? great point. Well, you know, this is one of the reasons the Russians... Maybe Israel? <laughs> no, no. The American, no. The Americans don't have their nuclear bombs in Israel, that's for sure. Yeah, the Israel, okay. Israelis stole the American uh, nuclear weapons and, and took them, and the Israelis are in charge of their own weapons. They're really in charge of a lot of D.C. too, actually. But Actually, we're not supposed to say the Israelis have nuclear weapons. Nobody, nobody says that. We're not supposed to say that. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, talking about non-denial denials, that's one of the biggest ones ever. <laughs> yeah. So uh, what do you think is the closest that they have? Is it, would it be somewhere in Europe somewhere? Where, where would that be? Well, you know, I, I don't know what they have in Poland right now. I know in Germany, in the Cold War, they definitely had American nuclear weapons, and there were protests to try to get them out. I think they're still there, actually. Uh, so somewhere in that neighborhood of Poland and Germany, I think, would be the closest to Moscow. Which is really close to Russia. <laughs> it is. It is. Yeah. How fast could it land in Moscow on Putin's head, right? That's yeah, I mean, you see why the Russians are not, you know, why they felt they had to do this. Because it's like the longer they wait, the closer these American first strike nukes get. And the faster they are, the more accurate they are, the better they are at doing a first strike. And, you know, if, if you don't draw the line somewhere, you know, you might as well just surrender your country. Can we also say that the Americans got pretty upset when uh, the Soviets put the uh, missiles in, in Cuba? And that was pretty close to the U.S. So shouldn't they have empathy to, for the Russians about, hey, you got a nuclear bomb pointing at us about 50 yards away from our house? I mean, come on now. Right. Yeah. If, if Russia tried to put uh, nukes in Cuba right now, I'm sure that that wouldn't be acceptable and the U.S. would do what it took to make sure that that didn't happen. So, yeah, it's, but of course, you know, we are the, the, the world's indispensable nation. The, you know, the American empire plays by different rules and is never willing to engage with other nations as 
rough equals. And that's too bad. You know, if I, if I were going to describe how I think that American foreign policy should change, you know, in a really succinct kind of manner, I would just say, let's just be the first among equals. You know, let's stop being exceptional, exceptional nation. We easily be first among equals and have the whole world love us. Uh, but I guess, you know, like the neocons say, it's better to be feared than loved. So let's go out and piss everybody off and make everybody scared of us. And somehow that's supposed to work better. I don't think so. Right now, after World War II, we, the United States became the number one power in the world, uh, kind of equalized with the Soviets a little bit, but not really, right? I mean, in, in a sense that the, it was a U.S. Uh, U.S. for the last 75 years or so. Um, do you think that's going to change with the BRICS, what's happening now with uh, a multipolar world? Or, or, or is the U.S. going to stay above this and, and still be number one? If we're talking 20 years from now, is the U.S. still the number one empire? Or are we going to be first among equals? Or, or what do you think that's going to happen? Yeah, I mean, if, if we don't end up you know, going down in flames and maybe taking the planet down with us, 20 years from now, we, we will be the first among equals at best, right? Yeah. And that's because that the world's production capacity, uh, you know, gross global GDP and all of that, it's shifted away from the U.S., away from the you know European vassals of the U.S. And now all of these up-and-coming countries are becoming wealthier and more technologically advanced, led by China, which has a bigger real economy than the U.S. does. Uh, we see Russian military technology outpacing the U.S. in many respects, including hypersonic weapons. Uh, we see India uh, growing like gangbusters, you know, Brazil, of course. Uh, so if you, if you did a little graph and you like looked at, you know, how much of the world's GDP did the U.S. have after World War II? We had about half. Uh, and it's been kind of going down ever since. And now I, th- I think the U.S. and the West, the whole West together are, are going to be down in the 20% range pretty soon. Uh, so you can't really rule the world the same way when the rest of the world is a lot more powerful relative to you than you used to be. And the American policymakers just haven't gotten used to that. Right. Now, I'm going to segue to some, another, another subject here, if I, if I may get you on this, because uh, I just saw recently that RFK is going to run as an independent. Uh, uh, I guess he was a, a Democrat, right? Is that what he was? Is that what was yeah, going yeah, on? Yeah, he's a lifelong Democrat, like his whole family. Yeah. Right. So what's, what's going on here? Well, the DNC has rigged the process so he can't possibly win. You know, they've, well, of course, they, you know, they've got the world's most outlandish kind of propaganda campaign against him going. It makes their anti-Trump thing look relatively reasonable and rational. Uh, and, but then most importantly is that they've rigged the process so that there are these so-called superdelegates were owned by the DNC. What is the DNC? The DNC is, is owned by its donors who are billionaire oligarchs. So these billionaire oligarchs, whose whole point purpose in life is to make sure that the Democratic Party never tries to you know, become a party of economic justice like it was to a certain extent back in the day, especially under Roosevelt. So they're, you know, they're paying the DNC to you know, do what they say. And so those, those uh, oligarchs have made sure that the DNC has this new process where the voters don't get to choose the candidate anymore. It's the voters get to choose a certain number of delegates to the convention who vote for who's the candidate. But the party itself controls so many so-called superdelegates, which are basically bought and paid for, you know, oligarch are bought and paid for delegates who in this context are all pledged to support Biden or whoever they replace Biden with, that it's completely impossible for somebody like uh, Kennedy 
to to win. And so he's faced the fact that the process is rigged. You know, it was rigged against Bernie Sanders earlier, just like the Republicans rigged it against Ron Paul. And uh, so RFK Jr., I think, is, is going to make that announcement. I think it's October 7th or 9th or something. He's, he's going to have a big speech and explain why he has to run as an independent. Interesting. So that's going to really have a, uh, some interesting effect into the politics of the United States. Here's, you know, I'm, I'm a betting man. I, I like to watch the NFL, the National Football League, and I, I enjoy that on weekends on Sunday. That was yesterday. And, uh, so I, I like to bet some, I don't really bet money, but I bet with friends, like just, just for the heck of it, not, you know, for a soda or something. But, um, here's my bet prediction for the, the, the long shot prediction for the United States politics in 2024. I know right now we have Biden versus Trump, and we might have RFK, looks like, uh, as a third. But I think, believe it or not, I'm going to go on, on a limb here, okay? This is crazy stuff. I'm going to say this, that we're not going to get Biden or Trump, that it's not going to be neither of them. I think in a long shot, look, let's be honest, you know, Biden, uh, he's getting older. He's, he's, he's having a hard time. There could be a health issue down the road. That's very likely, Okay. And same thing with Trump, by the way. He's also 78. He's also slurring his words and saying that Biden was, uh, Biden's going to get us into World War II. He just said that a couple days ago. He said something like, uh, well, he said a bunch of crazy stuff. But, um, I think he might not even make it to, to the, to the election because he's being hammered left and right on all these legal issues. So I think we might end up getting Gavin Newsom versus maybe, Somebody else that represents Trump, maybe Vivek Raswami, or mm-hmm. maybe you know, I guess Haley. What's her name? Haley. I can't remember her name. The lady, Nikki, Nikki Haley. Yeah. Nikki Haley. She's more of a neocon, isn't she? Yeah, yeah. She's a, a total yeah. neocon. Yeah. So she wouldn't be a Trumper, but even though Trump put her into her, the cabinet, right? So I don't know, but I just don't feel like I have this gut feeling like Trump is not going to make it to the election, and neither is Biden. By the way, that's what I feel. Well, that your gut could be right about that, John. I, it wouldn't, wouldn't surprise me. It's realistic because it's a long shot. I mean, it might be 100 to 1 odds in Vegas right now, and everybody's betting the, you know, the favorite, which is going to be Biden versus Trump. But I think something weird's going to happen. I, I don't have any inside information. Hmm. I don't know anything other than what you know. Um, I just feel like Biden is getting too old, and he's going to come up with either a health reason to back out, maybe do a Lyndon Johnson, which is – uh, I'm sorry, I, I was running, but I can't run anymore. What did Lyndon Johnson say whose excuse was? Do you remember that? Yeah, boy, I, I, I don't recall. It was, it was the Vietnam was War, wasn't it? I mean, well, that was, was the, real, the real reason was the Vietnam War, and he was very unpopular. But he, right. I don't think he said that. I forget precisely what he said. He gave a speech, and he made some story. I think we might get a Biden speech that due to health reasons, I'm going to have to bow out of the race. And... Normally, I think you would say, okay, well, Kamala Harris is going to take over, but I don't think so. I think it's going to be Gavin Newsom from uh, California. He seems to be the more popular Democrat than Kamala Harris by far, you know? But, you know, if Biden does step down like that uh, ahead of the uh, primaries, then that'll open up a real free-for-all in the primaries. Yeah. And some folks, yeah, and, and RFK Jr., assuming he's still in the primaries, uh, would have a, an advantage because he's, he's kind of the only guy who's been running all this time. So that, right. that was one uh, theoretical scenario of how RFK Jr. could actually win the Democratic nomination. If, if Biden or his handlers waited too long to yank him, yeah, right. then it might be too late to uh, shovel Newsom in there in time. But yeah. I, I and, and after watching the GOP, uh, what's it called, the uh, the debate, I mean, none of those guys were attacking Trump except Chris Christie. I think most of them are just waiting for either Trump to back out and, you know, either 
you know, move on or whatever, get arrested or, you know, put in jail or whatever. And I think that they're, they're waiting to pounce. But other than that, they got no shot at it if Trump doesn't leave. You know what I mean? So I think that's what's happening. I think one of them is going to take over. That's just my prediction. It's a crazy prediction right now. It's 100, 100 to 1 on the, on the Vegas odds. But, hey, man, keep your eye out on that one, you know? I sure will, yeah. Okay. On that note, I know you got you got to get going because you got a uh, uh, another interview here shortly. Uh, I want to talk to you about what's happening with you uh, this week and what you're working on, and tell our readers and viewers around the VT Foreign Policy World well how to reach you and all that kind of good stuff. Well, I'm working on an article for American Free Press about RFK Jr. running as an independent, and then I'm continuing to do my broadcasts, including False Flag Weekly News, and and that late article, of course, is up at, at VT accompanying False Flag Weekly News. Uh, so that, that's the big thing. People can find it by going to my Substack, kevinbarrett.substack.com. And, and are you accepting subscriptions now still? Is that what's going on with you? Because I, I want to talk about how to f- help fund your work because your work is so important and you're not mainstream media. And, you know, we could all use a little help with, with the finances to pay the bills. You know what I mean? Well, my work is primarily funded by my Substack subscribers, and so you can pay. Oh, it is like, okay. Yeah, you can pay uh, you know, seven, six bucks a month, or seven seventy dollars a year, uh, or you can be a two hundred and ten dollars a year subscriber. Uh, and then there are also some people who make uh, one-time donations by doing a, a PayPal donation to my email address, which is truthjihad at gmail Perfect. Okay. And on that note, don't forget everybody who's watching. Here's your VT cup. You can get it on uh, vtforeignpolicy.com. It has the uh, VT radio logo on the back, of course. Don't forget that. And if you like what you're listening to, don't forget to fund VT Foreign Policy uh, at buymeacoffee.com. You'll see us there on our website. If you just go to any article on the right side, you'll see the little uh, ad there. Click on that and you can donate a one-time donation or become a member for $8 a month. That really helps a lot. You know, we just got hit uh, this week by Google. They're uh, questioning our COVID articles and the articles on Nazis and Judaism and what's the other one? Uh, Ukraine. So, um, yeah, we're getting a lot of... Yeah, we got yeah, we got hit, we got hit a lot this week. I spent this whole week uh, trying to figure out how to how to go around that, do the workaround as usual, you know. So okay. I kind of told everybody, "Hey, back off for a week. On just like hang in there. Let me get through this little review thing with them. So once they go away, then we can go back to normal until they start hitting us again." You know. Jeez, you know, I, somehow I missed that message because that latest article I posted probably isn't going to make the Google censors happy. Uh, <laughs> well, I, your article's okay. It's it's the overt ones that. Uh, you know, the overt COVID vaccine ones that are really concerning them right now for, you know, they go, they go in and out. I mean, it's one week it's Russia next week. It's COVID. I mean, I don't know what the hell they're doing half the time. It's just government run censorship, but they kind of put pressure on them. I guess that's, that's a guess. I don't really know the answer to that. Do you know the answer? I don't know. Yeah. I just, all I know is it's gotten completely Orwellian. I wish the internet were back the way it had been, you know, it was 2005, 2007 right. when loose change BT started in 2004 and it was you know it was an open open communication to everybody it was open it was a, there was nothing it was just yeah, and, and people liked vt people, and it, that's it yeah vt quickly became the biggest veterans publication on the internet and nobody yeah. was stopping it right until we got stopped <laughs> well say la vie my friend okay hey dr kevin have a fabulous evening in morocco and have a great interview for your next show and we'll talk to you next time All right. Thanks, John. Take care. Take care, buddy. If you enjoyed this presentation, hit the like button now. Also, share it with your friends. And don't forget to subscribe so that you don't miss an episode. VT approves this message.